Hi, it's Joe from the Jack News team, and I've got a load more virus-related stories to tell you about this week. So Boris Johnson suggested that pubs and restaurants could be open sooner than we all thought. In a bit, we'll hear from one of Oxfordshire's pubs that's getting ready to welcome us all back in for a pint. Don't know about you, but I can't wait. I do miss a nice beer garden. We've also had a chat with the commercial director at Oxford City Football Club. He's recovered from coronavirus after spending five days in an induced coma. And with lockdown now gradually easing, places like Blenheim Palace are starting to reopen and we'll be chatting to experienced Oxfordshire about how the local economy is looking right now. First, though, with local schools set to start fully reopening on Monday, hundreds of thousands of pieces of personal protective equipment were delivered this week, including masks and gloves. Schools themselves have been carrying out risk assessments and putting social distancing measures in place. Michelle Codrington-Rogers is a teacher in Oxfordshire, but she's also the president of the teaching union, the NASUWT. Now, she told me that she thought the messages from government have been confusing, but she also said teachers are prepared. We had one group of scientists saying we need more time and we had another group of scientists saying we're still not sure. How is that supposed to reassure parents, let alone teachers, that schools will be safe as a work? Now, teachers will go above and beyond with the rest of the school community to make sure that they will do what they can within their power. But it's also the huge responsibility of the government to reassure that the decision that they've taken is in the best interest of the school community. I just wondered in the future, maybe come September, whether you think there will be changes that might have to be implemented for a longer sort of time period in terms of anything like class sizes. As a union, we've always campaigned to make sure that we had manageable class sizes. Um, And so it all comes down to what we as a school community think what school should look like. A lot of it will be guided by what the government's guidance is when it comes to a gathering in places and how many can gather in the space and what that should look like. And schools, teachers will always try to make it work. That's one of our, our superpowers, one of our special skills is making it work. But I think that there will need to be an overall relook at what school looks like. We've seen it in Scotland and Wales. What they've done is they've put together a task force of educationalists and academics and representatives of governors and parents to kind of say, this is what school will look like when we go back in September. Our government haven't done that. They haven't involved all the stakeholders. And so it's very piecemeal. But it can be done. We've seen that happen with the devolved government. And so that's what we're calling for the government as well to do, to listen to the experts and to actually have a plan that reflects what school could look like, whether it's temporary or whether it's a bit more permanent, so that we can make sure that all our children have the opportunity to learn. In terms of Oxfordshire schools that are due to open on Monday or um, a couple of weeks later, have you heard of any that have actually decided to sort of delay or postpone that at all? A number of schools are making that decision based on the information that they have got. There are some schools who have said, we just cannot make it work in the way that the government have kind of given us the guidance because it means that it have a negative impact on our school community. And we respect the schools who have worked with the staff, who have worked with the school community, who have worked with our members, who have made a decision, whichever way it goes, which has been based on the information they have at that time. 
but it's really important to remember that schools have been put in a very difficult position and head teachers are being expected to make a very difficult uh, decision that they never envisioned that they would have to make. I think it's really important as well to note that as teachers, we want to be in front of our students. We want to teach our young people. We want them to be able to develop as the whole person that they are. And that's really important to know. But teachers will find it difficult to do that if they don't feel that it's safe for them to be in that, um, in that environment. And so it is, us, it is about us trying to make sure that schools are as safe as possible. And I personally want to thank all of the parents and carers who have been doing school at home as somebody who's been doing it themselves, it is not easy. It is not sometimes what we is not what we expected to be doing at the beginning of 2020. But it's all we're doing everything we can in the best interest of the children and young people. And so I want to say thank you to all the parents and carers. I also caught up with Lucy Coleman this week. She's a primary teacher in Kidlington and she's also president of the Oxfordshire branch of the National Education Union. So she talked a little about the changes schools have been making in the last few months to get ready for the 1st of June. Things like sinks, you know, having enough uh, soap and water, paper towels, bins with lids, that kind of thing. There's an awful lot in the the, um, government guidance that schools have had to quickly prepare and organise and create risk assessments. And for some schools, the timing of that, particularly with a week of half term as part of those three weeks from when it was announced, it just, you know, it wasn't practical to get all of those things in place in such a short time frame. And I wondered as well whether you'd heard of any what might seem more extreme measures, I suppose, to to do social distancing in schools, because I know um, a friend of mine whose child is, is about to go to primary school had heard about some of them using sort of hoops in the playground and that type of thing to try and keep kids, you know, two metres apart. Have you heard of anything like that? So I think this comes from the fact that the um, the government guidance was not particularly clear um, and also the government guidance has been updated. I think I read somewhere that it was updated 41 times in a week. Um, so and, and it's quite vague. It, it, it sort of talks about keeping children two metres apart but then later on it says actually we realise that young children can't stay two metres apart. So some schools have, you know, gone to the extreme and said that it needs to be, you know, children need to be two metres apart. Others have said, actually, that's not going to be practical and have have said that we will try to maintain two metres, but we realise it's not always going to be possible. I I work with early years children and I know that that it will be impossible to keep four and five-year-olds two metres apart. And I think what it should be is that... um, where possible, you you maintain a distance. But of course, if a, if a four year old falls over and hurts their knee, you're not going to administer first aid from a two meter distance. You're going to have to get closer. And young children are very social creatures. They're going to want to play with their friends. They're going to want to sit with them and and build with the Lego. Um, so I think it, it comes down to the fact that the guidance is is not very clear and not very specific. Of course. And do you think there's also an element for parents that maybe it's going to be a bit of a relief, obviously, when the children can go back and maybe they can get back to work and just things might feel a bit more normal at home too? Of course. And and I recognise that actually, you know, that 
the experience of lockdown will be very different for every family and every child. And I think actually what would have been better is if schools had been able to have those conversations with families and find out which families were struggling, which families maybe, you know, were, were de desperate to get back to work because they can't work from home um, or perhaps they were, you know, were suffering financially because of the lockdown. And actually, you know, particularly primary schools, we have really good relationships with our families. We know their situations. We have already offered further places to children in our school where we identified a need. So actually, I think schools would have been in, in a very good position to use their judgment and to work with families and to find a you know a phased return for those families first and actually say to the parents if you are happy at the moment and your child is happy at the moment and you don't require a place then you know work, work on that basis rather than saying you know specifying so clearly the date and the year groups that needed to return I think schools should have been allowed flexibility in terms of the date and in terms of which families they invited back first as teachers and as school staff we desperately want to get back to school you know we've really missed being in the classroom we've missed being with the children and we've missed seeing our colleagues what we want to do is make it safe and we want to work with parents with head teachers and with you know the unions to make it safe and to make it workable for every school now we're going to hear from a local man who narrowly survived the coronavirus. It's Mick Livesey, who's the commercial director at Oxford City Football Club. He's now on the mend and he spoke to Emma from News about what it was like being blue-lighted to hospital with COVID-19. It was all like a bit of a shock. You know, I didn't realise kind of really what was going on. It's, it's always a scary thing when you're rushed into hospital anywhere, but when you're rushed into hospital under those circumstances, then you're told that, you know, you need to be put in an induced coma. Um, and then, you know, I asked what the odds are. If you don't get put in the induced coma, they're very slim. You, you're probably going to die. But if you get put in the coma, you've got a 50-50 fighting chance, um, which, you know, you know, was is something that will stay with me for the rest of my life. It really will. It was um, so scary, but probably at the same time, probably one of the best things to ever happen to me, if that makes sense, because of what I've done afterwards. How clear is that moment of you becoming really unwell? It was, it was really strange. Um, I can't really explain it because even when they were saying to me that they need to put me in an induced coma that I was going to die, I'm like, are you sure? I feel unwell, but I don't feel that unwell. Um, so it, it was bizarre, I mean, it really was. What kind of symptoms did you have? This is a strange thing as well. I only had, a, I only had an headache. I never had... No cough, nothing like that. I just had a, I, I never get headaches. But for a week solid, I had a, I had an headache. I just, I just couldn't get rid of it. No matter what I, what I tried to take for the headache, just wouldn't shift it. As, as, as it went on, like a week, 10 days, started becoming shortness of breath and struggling to breathe. Um, th those were my only symptoms. You said that, obviously, it's one of the worst moments of your life, but you happy with what you've done since what have you been doing it's a great it's a great level of when 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 first of all when i came out of the coma just to be so thankful that i was alive um and that i managed to to get through it but then as you led there in in hospital there's not a right lot else to do so you start pondering and thinking about things and listen my lifestyle was shocking I used to smoke 20 cigarettes a day, probably used to drink 25 pints of lager a week. 
and I used to eat out takeaways five, six, seven times a week. Since March the 13th, I haven't smoked. I stopped smoking, did it without any gadgets or anything, just decided that that was it. And, uh, you know, obviously, yeah, not drinking the same. But when you're in the football environment, when I say like I drunk 25 pints, but I wasn't drinking every day. You talked about how the virus affected you physically. What about mentally? Well, it's left some, uh, it left some scars there, I think. When you see people dying all around you, and make no mistake, they were dying all around me. Just one, you're so grateful to be alive. But also, I guess, feel a little bit guilty. Those people in there, I, I, I had my 43rd birthday while I was in a coma. Um, I'm not really counting that one, if we can get away with it. But what, 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 during that time, there was people in there younger than me that, that, that died. Um, and probably had an healthier sort of lifestyle. So you've you got guilt. But also, the, the effect it's had upon my family. You know, when... You know, my wife and, and, and my dad, uh, my mum sadly passed away a couple of years ago, but my brothers and sisters, you know, he's had a massive effect. They couldn't come to see you, they couldn't really speak to you. And they didn't know whether they were going to ever see you again. He um, certainly left an effect on them. Probably affected them more than it's affected me because I was asleep in a coma. Do you have a message or any tips on keeping, you know, your mental health as good as you can in the circumstances? You know, it's very easy to say, um, be positive and things like that, but there's always somebody that is worse off than you. If you have a car that's two years old, you know, someone who's got a car that's three years old would want your car. Do you know what I mean? And, and same in life, there's always somebody that is worse off than you. And I think that everybody has the power to change it. Um, I'm under no illusions. I, I became so ill. Um, didn't have any official underlying health issues, but my lifestyle contributed massively to it. I, I, I really believe that. Um, I want to take time out to be healthy and, and, and you know, realise that you, your brain is, is, is an organ. And, it, you know, you, you treat all your other organs in your body, but you often forget about the brain because... You, you know, mental health and things like that as a stigma. It's okay not to be okay, but know that while you're still alive, every day is a different day. Mick Livesey there chatting about his experience of the coronavirus. And over to the pubs now, because more than 30 of them in Oxfordshire have signed up to this new initiative, which helps them stay afloat during lockdown. It's basically special gift cards that can now be bought, which you can use at your local once all the restrictions are lifted. Gary Flux runs the Shepherd's Hut in Yuan and says it's been a difficult time for the industry. There's going to be quite a few fallers, I think, in this. And, you know, certainly not all pubs will stay open. Uh, hopefully, I'll manage to weather the storm. You know, there's certain other incentives out there. There's, you know, there's, there's lots of companies out there trying to help pubs um, with their different offers and such to help, you know, to help us get through this and to, and to support us to try and generate as much sales as we can, especially when we reopen as well. Um, you know, it's not just the immediate issue. It's, it's, it's if we can weather the storm and reopen, you know, and hopefully touch wood mid-July, it's in relation to how quickly we're going to be able to regain momentum and get up to speed of it. Because, you know, people's people's way of drinking, socialising is going to be completely different. Not everyone's going to be coming back to the pub. But then, as I said, we might get a new sector of clientele come in. So it's unknown territory at the moment, unfortunately. Of course, and I know there's lots of talk about what pubs are gonna, and bars are going to look like when they reopen. And I actually read earlier that 
one of the ideas is that you're not going to be allowed to drink at the bar. You'll have to pick up your drinks and go back to your seat. Do you think that might work? Correct, Joe. Yes. So we've already had some guidelines given to us where where we would have have a uh, a taped off area. Actually, the bar one meter from the bar would actually be taped off, so we'd actually be able to go to the bar as such. There'd be partitions in between tables. Um, there'd be um, ordering your ordering your drinks on some some sort of app or a phone number that people text into from where they're sat, which which is a great idea anyway. In fairness. But how all these things are going to work in reality are obviously yet to, you know, we're yet to find out. But, um, you know, there's obviously throughout the summer, as we're going to be going into now, if the weather stays like this, touch wood, then we can um, do the social distancing in the garden. Um, but how, I mean, this is all, this is all just talk. This is all hearsay. How this will actually be policed and, you know, will this actually be worthwhile? Well, obviously, this is yet to be seen. Let's talk a bit about this new initiative then, Save Pub Life. Um, What was it that kind of attracted you to this and do you think it is going to pick up and do well? Right at the start of lockdown, I was trying to, you know, fish around for, you know, for any other angles that I hadn't thought about to try and to try and keep the pub going, to try and generate extra income, and uh, we come across this one, which is sponsored by Budweiser, and it's, uh, you know, it's a great little deal basically. So the um, the customer can go onto their website, um, purchase, say for example, a twenty pound voucher. Uh, for that twenty pounds, they get double the amount back, so they get a forty pound voucher back. Um, to spend within my pub, so we're able to spend within the Shepherd's Hut in Yoelm uh, when we reopen. Uh, the benefit for me is that I get I get the cash instantly, so so I get that forty pound credited to me instantly, and then the customer can go and use that voucher um, when we reopen. Have you managed to sell any yet? Uh, yes, yes, we have. Yeah, they're trickling in. What's been great is we've had quite a few pubs sign up to it. So, um, you know, and obviously people are sort of sort of spreading their wings in relation to in relation to uh, where they're spending their money. So, you know, hope it's not just locals that are buying the vouchers of our people from the fighter field that haven't really maybe been to us before and have just seen us on their websites in relation to that from a PR that PR perspective, that's really good. But obviously people's budgets aren't there either at the moment as well. So, you know, it's jobs aren't secure, etc. But we're still asking people to help support the local pub, etc. So we understand that, you know, people have their priorities. So people can link in from our website onto the Budweiser side where you can actually purchase it. Yeah, we have some great uplift from it. If you want to help support the Shepherd's Hut or your local, just head to savepublife.com. Also this week, Emma chatted to a professor of sleep medicine at Oxford Uni after 41% of people in England admitted that they are struggling to get some shut-eye at the moment due to all those worries about the coronavirus. Colin Espy gave us some tips for better sleep during the pandemic. The main things for us to think about um, when we're struggling with our sleep are how we can uh, get our sleep into a good pattern. Uh, I always encourage people to not be afraid to experiment, to find your best, what we call, sleep window. That is the the best time for you to sleep and the best amount of time for you to sleep. When you um, put your shoes on uh, in the morning, you know that they fit you, but they know they fit you because you've tried out different sizes in the past and you now know what the best fit is. So it's worthwhile just checking your sleep fit, that that you've got the right amount of time in bed at the best time uh, for you. Remembering we're all different and we, we don't all need exactly the same amount of sleep. The next thing to do is to try and protect your sleep. 
And the main enemy of sleep is the racing mind. So we encourage people to, in the evening, have a wind-down period before they go to bed. Don't just jump into bed, but wind down before you go to bed, just in the same way as you prepare your meals, you prepare um, a, before you, 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 you eat, you have to cook your food, you have to set the table. A preparatory phase before you go to bed at night to wind down, write down things that may be troubling you, close the book in the day, and if during the night you struggle to sleep, to get to sleep or to stay asleep, don't overthink it. Remember that good sleepers are not good at sleeping. Good sleepers are not um, experts in some way. They just don't think about it. So if you struggle to sleep, try not to overthink it. Just get up for a little while, go back to bed when you feel sleepy and trust that sleep will come to you. What are your thoughts on uh, sleep post-lockdown as well? Do you think there could be some concerns for people uh, struggling with it as they try and get back into more of a, a regime? I think during the, the lockdown, all our patterns of, of day-to-day living have changed, haven't they? I mean, we may not be going to work or we might not be working in the usual pattern. We're not able to get out and about and see friends and family. So what we're doing has changed. And it may be that our, our sleep routine has also changed. We might be going to bed a bit earlier, a bit later than usual, or sleeping on in the morning or you know, lying in bed for longer. What I encourage people to do is to try and get back into a good routine now. And the best way to do that is to uh, set a time for bedtime and for rising time, ideally seven uh, nights a week. And having figured out what your best sleep pattern is to try to stick to it and protect it, we need to prioritize um, food, for example, during the day, exercise. So at night time, we should be prioritizing sleep. Where can people access help if they are still struggling and they've followed your tips? The Every Mind Matters campaign is something that has been set up by Public Health England. And there's very good advice on that website. You can develop your own personal mind plan then and included in that to look after your nighttime as well as your daytime, you can plan how to improve your sleep. And I wish everyone a very good sleep. Colin Espy there who says we should write things down that might be troubling us and close the book on the day. Some really handy advice there if you are suffering with a bit of insomnia at the moment. Another story we covered this week also involved Oxford Uni, but a professor who's been investigating conspiracy theories around the coronavirus. Daniel Freeman found that people who believe in them are also worryingly less likely to comply with the social distancing rules. So we did a survey from the 4th of May to the 11th of May, so for one week, of 2,500 adults in England. I mean, the findings were are, are very, very sobering. Um, so about Half of people think, to some extent, that the virus is made by uh, powerful organizations. 40% of people believe, to some extent, that uh, the virus is a deliberate attempt by powerful people to gain control. Uh, about 20% believe that the virus is actually a hoax. But there's an extraordinary range in content in uh, coronavirus conspiracy beliefs with lots of variation who people thought were behind it and what their methods were and what their motives were. And talk to me about some of those. We've got lots of questions about whether China was involved in this and then you've got actually different religious groups and, and politicians and all sorts, haven't you? Yeah, extraordinary the range. So the idea that coronavirus is a bioweapon developed by China to destroy the West was endorsed to some extent by about 45% of respondents about 25% of people agreed it uh, to a reasonably high degree. 
um, but also people thought that perhaps uh, Muslims are spreading the virus or Jews have created the virus or that Bill Gates is involved uh, and even ideas about the World Health Organization already having a vaccine but are withholding it. So a whole range of sort of false ideas about coronavirus. It's really quite shocking, isn't it? And actually, what do you think it is that's kind of making this spread? Is it hearsay, people sort of talking to friends and family and sharing their theories or is it... Uh, you know, fake news or a bit of both? It's absolutely the case that the people who had uh, higher levels of conspiracy beliefs were more likely to get their information from friends or social media or YouTube rather than more reputable uh, sources of information. I mean, I think we've got all the ingredients with the pandemic for conspiracy theories to develop. People are feeling very threatened. There's uncertainty. There's change. There's imposed change. And uh, it's all we're talking about. So there's lots of the conditions we would expect conspiracy beliefs to uh, thrive. Mm. And the problem is, as you point out in your report, it seems that people that do have those conspiracy theories are then not necessarily following the government's social distancing guidelines. It's very concerning. So those who believe in conspiracy theories are less likely to follow government guidance. So, for example, they're less likely to stay at home or not meet people outside their household or when outside, they're less likely to stay two metres apart from other people. And also, uh, the people who endorse the conspiracy beliefs are more likely to say that they wouldn't take a diagnostic test or they wouldn't accept a vaccine or even that they would dissuade family and friends from having a vaccination. Professor Daniel Freeman there talking about some of the COVID conspiracies that have been doing the rounds. Now we're going to hear a little bit from the chairman of a Filipino community group in Oxfordshire. So new analysis this week by Sky News suggested that 65% of all health workers who've died so far with the virus were from black, Asian or minority ethnic backgrounds. Ariel Lanada is also a senior nurse at the John Radcliffe and I wanted to talk to him about how his colleagues and friends were feeling about it all. There are more or less 3,000 Filipinos living and working in Oxfordshire and around um, between five to 600 of us are working at the John Radcliffe Hospital. Majority of us are nurses. The way Filipino community responded to this virus is um, we make sure that um, we are all connected. We have our online chat. We chat every day. We check everyone in the morning, um, you know, how's everybody, good morning. And um, we also chat in the afternoon, you know, saying how's your day been. And, um, you know, um, there's also several uh, prayer um, groups or activities going on throughout the day. We also have been buying and delivering groceries to members of our community who are on home quarantine as a result of COVID-19. And uh, for the last seven weeks, we have been distributing free hot meals, so free lunches to our NHS heroes. In pandemic like this, I think panic is not the answer. Uh, of course, everybody is anxious, but I think the correct understanding of the science behind COVID and the uh, correct knowledge and, uh, you know, in the use of personal protective equipment at the right time, I think is key uh, in protecting our staff, um, patients and uh, the public. I wondered how you sort of thought morale was at the moment amongst staff and, and Filipino staff especially and whether you think the sort of hot meals were helping to boost that. 
Um, yeah, certainly. Um, so, you know, in the hospital, um, because of social uh, distancing, you have to queue for um, at least two meters apart. And, um, and you know, uh, break time is only limited, and sometimes people have to queue, a long queue in the canteen um, to buy their food. So providing this food will cut that time, but also um, a simple way of saying big thank you to our um, NHS staff uh, who are, you know, uh, risking their lives, if you like, um, in, in, in looking after our, our patients. And there have been reports about the, the coronavirus disproportionately affecting ethnic minorities. And I just wondered how you feel about that and how do your colleagues feel about that? Is there a concern around that? Yes, the data shows that um, there is a bit of uh, disproportionate um, with the black and uh, ethnic minorities so groups of Filipinos included, and uh, that triggered the call from the uh, Philippine ambassador in the United Kingdom um, asking the National Health Service to make sure that our Filipino uh, workers are um, are protected. So um, we have uh, instructed all our um, managers to complete a risk assessment to um, people who are, um, you know, in that group and as well as other people who may be in the uh, risk category. Um, So I think the key here is um, uh, very important for the staff to uh, have a dialogue or conversation with their direct line managers and the direct line managers to complete the risk assessment and um, do the, the, the right thing uh, based on the assessment. I think it is very important to uh, remain uh, vigilant, remain uh, safe. Coronavirus, there is still no uh, known cure of uh, the, uh, the virus, so it is still very, very alive and powerful. So keep safe, um, be sensible. Now we're heading into space. Well, Oxfordshire's space sector, that is. It's pretty big here. There is a huge number of space businesses over at the Harwell campus, like the European Space Agency. And Major Tim Peake has even popped in not so long ago. But despite COVID-19, things are actually being scaled up there. Emma's been chatting to Joanna Hart, the Space Cluster Development Manager. As we start to look to the recovery phase, we need to be looking at sectors that are growing and where we've got opportunities to increase exports to help the UK in that recovery phase. Um, Harwell Space Cluster uh, is able to help that. It's already very well recognised globally, and this will allow it uh, to help secure more sales for space companies in the UK and therefore more jobs longer term. Do you have any concerns about what economic uncertainty that the COVID-19 pandemic could bring? Clearly, COVID-19 has brought a lot of uncertainty and uh, concerns to businesses, but uh, the space sector is one that was already growing. It's important. Uh, We rely on it for positioning, for navigation. If we don't have the... the, It's one of those that's got to be continued to be invested in and therefore uh, is... potentially uh, more secure than other sectors as it's, it's got that underpinning piece. How are you protecting companies then at Howell at this time and are there any actually struggling? I think all companies are struggling at this current point with the how do we return to work? Uh, how do we make social, dis- how do we implement social distancing measures? 
uh, how do we structure our new, business, our new ways of doing business. However, what we can try and do through the Harwell Space Cluster is use that as a flagship to attract interest in uh, globally. It's, space is very much a global sector, and it's about attracting that interest in so they can potentially secure future exports. Clearly, businesses through this period have not been able to travel and find new business leads. They're going to need some help to do that as things start to uh, the lockdown eases and people are able to start to travel and promote their activities again. How will having more people at Howell benefit the space sector? It's about growing the whole space sector. The UK has set the ambitious target of 10% of the global space market by 2030. And so that is about growing not just at Harwell, but across the UK. But obviously, Harwell Space Cluster is uh, important nationally. It's recognised globally. It's an important part of the whole of the UK space sector. So it's, its contribution to the whole of that UK space sector growth is important. And finally, you might have heard this week, it is English Tourism Week. And obviously, with so many local attractions shut, it's been important this year to highlight what Oxfordshire's got to offer which is what Hayley Beer-Gamage, the CEO of Experience Oxfordshire, has been trying to do. Here she is chatting to Emma about the massive hit the coronavirus has had on our county. Normally, Oxfordshire's visitor economy is worth £2.3 billion a year and supports 40,000 jobs. Uh, Experience Oxfordshire undertook um, a COVID-19 visitor economy business impact survey um, when all of this hit. And the impact is really severe and already businesses are losing or the economy is losing, should I say, in the region of £137 million a month. If that continues at current levels, obviously we're set to lose over a billion, so almost 50% of visitor economy revenue this year into Oxfordshire. And obviously, um, as lockdown lifts or more restrictions are put on businesses on how they can operate in the future, it could be even more severe than that. And currently, you know, the other results of our survey did show that 45% of businesses which are operating in the visitor economy may close within three months if more measures aren't put in place to support them. So it's having a huge impact on Oxfordshire's visitor economy. How quickly do you think that Oxfordshire could bounce back from this? Once we are given clear guidance from government and the the, the key point there is clear guidance, not advice. We absolutely need guidance to, to reopen the visitor economy. It's going to be phased. It's going to be local first, absolutely. Uh, then it's going to be domestic and then it will be international. And we're not expecting really to see the volumes of international visitor probably until Easter 2021 that we would have expected. So it's a very much phased recovery. Um, as I said, local people first, exploring um, the assets on their doorstep, very much becoming a doorstep tourist um, and getting out and exploring and of course people have been missing each other people are going to want to get together with friends and family that they've missed so we expect to see more of a an increase in those uh, multi-generational families wanting to travel and also perhaps millennials which are less risk adverse then as that eases off people are going to want to do more domestic holidays where they have more confidence to travel around the country and hopefully we'd like to think that Oxfordshire is front of mind for that given all the work that we're doing through things like our hashtag Green Oxfordshire campaign and then working and having really warm dialogue with um, international media and travel trade to make sure that we can be welcoming back those international visitors really from 2021 onwards when hopefully appropriate measures have been put in place to do so. Is there anything that local residents can do to help with the tourism industry? I think it's 
really about supporting those local businesses. It's appreciating the assets that you've got on your doorstep. And we've run a range of campaigns. So some of the things are very much buy local, support your local suppliers, um, buy vouchers to businesses which are currently closed that you can use in the, in the future, which can help them with their cash flow right now. Um, talking a bit more widely about if you if you booked a visit to Oxford and Oxfordshire, please reschedule it and don't cancel. Also, small things like going online and doing reviews. We've all been out to these fantastic places which we have to visit locally. But have you gone online and done a review about just how fantastic that attraction or that restaurant is that you've been to to really give them the boost that they need and encourage people to visit in the future? So I think it's really about um, endorsing each other, supporting each other, and really flying the flag for the fantastic product and destination we have here in Oxfordshire. Hayley Beer-Gamage there from Experience Oxfordshire with some very good ideas for how we can all help the local economy survive until things get back to normal. That may be a little way away, of course, but for now, at least we can start getting out and exploring again. I don't know about you, but I found some pretty lush picnic spots in the last few months. So enjoy the sunshine all and stay safe.